Howdy. It's great to be back. Let me just extend our praise time a few more minutes and share with you how things went. First of all, thanks so much for praying for our daughter Katie and the surgery that she had a couple of weeks ago. It uh, seems to have gone just fine. We haven't gotten any uh, results back as far as the thyroid that was removed, um, but all signs look great. So thanks so, so much. Please continue to pray that there will be no residual cancer in her, uh, in her body and that uh, the whole thing's been gotten. Um, also, thanks for praying for the, the trip itself. As many of you know, I was gone to Israel, and before Israel, I did some filming in Rome and in Turkey and Greece for my uh, business or my ministry, Walking the Bible Lands, and it was really great. I had, a, had some weather issues and actually lost my flying video camera, which is called a drone. When you say drone, it sounds military, but it really isn't. It's just a flying video camera. And I actually took two of them. I took a small one because I, had, I wanted to be able to fly in Turkey, and Turkey has regulations that don't apply if you have a drone that weighs under a certain amount. So I thought, I'll just get a, a drone that doesn't weigh much and uh, don't have to worry about all the regulations. So it, it served as a backup when my big, nice drone was flying away, and we were in the Golan Heights one morning, and it has a little gizmo on it that knows that when it needs to turn around and come back to me, because there's only so much battery left. And for years, it's worked great. But it didn't take into account the incredible headwind that, uh, that it faced trying to come back. Uh, flying with the headwind was no problem, but against it, big deal. And it ran out of battery. I only wish I could have seen it plummet from the sky. That would have been beautiful. But anyway, so it's gone forever. So, but, you know, it's only money. You just do what you can to keep going, and thankfully that it was toward the end of the trip, and I had a backup drone that I was able to use um, in its place. So anyway, Kathy flew over just before our Israel trip and joined me for a tour to Israel and Jordan, which was a great blessing. We really enjoyed it. And I'm always amazed at how the Lord brings people uh, who, are, who are, need to be impacted by the Scriptures. Because a trip to Israel is never just a trip to Israel. It's a trip inside the Bible in a way that you can't get any other way, through video, through pictures, even through a testimony of someone telling you that it's awesome. It, uh, it really is amazing and life-changing. We had people who, from the very first day that we would open the Scriptures in Beersheba and talk about Jacob's fearful move to Egypt, they immediately were in, could connect with, with Jacob's struggle and fear of trusting God. All the way through um, when we went in Jordan to Machairus, where John the Baptist struggled with doubt, and he sent to Jesus and asked, are you really the expected one or should we look for somebody else? And those who are really struggling with doubt in their walk with God. So the scriptures meet people right where they are, no matter where you are. I mean, you can be sitting in the marathon class, or you can be sitting on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and God's Word shows up. But I love, 
I love the trips, though, the tours, because they, they give a focus and a context to the Bible that you can't get any other way. So if you've not been to Israel, I invite you to join us, um, or if you'd like to go again, we have a tour this fall that's still, still got some space. So once again, thank you for, for praying. Flying internationally, as I've discovered, is uh, it's hard work. If you've ever flown internationally, you know it is tough. And riding coach in the cheap seats, it's getting harder and harder because it's getting smaller and smaller. Or I'm getting bigger. <laughs> one of them, one of it's true or all of it's true. But this last time, I actually pulled my laptop out and I couldn't open it because the seat in front of me and if you, I realize that the way that flying and coach works, if you were to take a strap and basically strap your elbows to your side, this, this is all you have to work with. I mean, you, you got to, it's a challenge. And so you type that way, you know, you call for the, the stewardess that way. You do everything from your elbows. Um, it, it's funny, the start of the international flight you know, and it was going to be a 12-hour flight, so I kicked my shoes off, and then at the end of the flight realized I couldn't put them back on because <laughs> I couldn't reach them. <laughs> That's terrible. I literally couldn't touch my feet. I just started laughing. It's like sardines crammed in a little can. But the best was when the guy in front of me leaned his seat back, and it's like he's in my lap. I thought, I could do a dental cleaning on this man right here. <laughs> so, you do any fishing? How's the family? Anyway, it's getting small. It's getting to it'd be such a challenge. And I think the, the airline's motto these days is probably more of afflicting the comfortable than comforting the afflicted. Which brings us to Amos. So turn, if you would, to the book of Amos, chapter 6. We're picking up again with our series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible, and we've made it all the way here to the Minor Prophets. I remember hearing about a pastor who was teaching one time in the Minor Prophets, and he announced, he said, and now we come to the book of Amos. What shall we do with Amos? And some guy sitting in the back said, he can have my seat, I'm going home. And it's an understandable reaction because the minor prophets are, by and large, fairly dull. And if you get into them at any level, they're, they're beyond dull. They, they get unsettling because they begin to talk about sin. We don't like that. We want all the, the Bible verses that encourage us, you know, the Bible verses that are on the wall in the Christian bookstores that that uh, inspire us and give us hope. Well, the minor prophets do that, but they also are very heavy into saying it like it is, and Amos is no exception. If we were to look at the whole book of Amos, we would learn that Amos is a sheep herder, or was a sheep herder, and a fig picker from a town called Tekoa. It sounds sort of like a, a country bumpkin, doesn't it? I'm a fig picker from Tekoa. But he was called by... 
Carol, I'm glad you came today. <laughs> you needed a good laugh, didn't you? But Amos was from the south, from the southern part of Israel. In fact, during the time of the Minor Prophets, Israel was two nations, the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. And they were two nations, two capitals, two kings. I mean, they were separate. And sometimes they were allies. Very often they were at each other. And Amos was from the, the southern Judah. And he was called by God to go to the northern kingdom and to prophesy there. And he was one of the only two prophets, Hosea and Amos, that were directed to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was almost just such a, a loss that there were so few prophets that went there. Most of the prophets and the minor prophets went to the southern kingdom of Judah because there, at least there was some hope. Northern kingdom had 20 different kings. Not one of them was godly. The southern kingdom had 20 kings as well, and only about eight or so were godly. It depends on how you take a couple of them. But Amos was called to go from Judah to Israel and prophesy. So let's look Amos chapter 6, right in verse 1. Amos writes, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. He's speaking to those who are basically self-satisfied, and he uses there in verse 1 that phrase, those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. The mountain of Samaria is referring to the town or the city of Samaria. You can go to Israel today, and in uh, north of Jerusalem, there is Tel Samaria. It is, uh, it's not a place that people go because it's in what's called the West Bank area, and it is, uh, it's just so much else to see that's easier to get to. You don't have to switch buses. You don't have to switch guides. It's not as politically, pol politically charged. And the good thing about that is if you do go, you got the whole place to yourself. It's really pretty wonderful. Tell Samaria, if you're standing there, all you got to do is look around and you realize that no wonder they chose this to be the capital of the northern kingdom. It was easy to defend, steep slopes all around. It, and it, in its heyday, it could accommodate as many as 40,000 citizens, and it had about 150 acres on top of this hill. And it was basically impregnable during times of siege. The, the, whole, the whole city could last basically as long as the water supply did because you could not take it. It had fertile valleys all around it. I mean, it was a great place to have a capital. The problem was it was such a great place that the people there thought, we don't need God because we, we're protected. We got plenty of food. I mean, so what do we need the Lord for? And this is Amos's problem. Samaria gave Israel its heyday of success and security, but God called their success a failure. If we were to look elsewhere in the book of Amos, we would see his, uh, his sarcasm. Well, we see it here in verse uh, 1 where it says, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations. That's sarcasm. That's not the truth. I mean, it's, you, could, you could say that with your tongue firmly in cheek. 
But elsewhere, uh, Amos, is he not only attacks the men here, but he goes for the women also by calling them the cows of Bashan, which is pro- was not very an endearing term to be called a cow. But basically, he was saying, you know, they're, they're, they're indulgent, they're, they're rebellious, and they're like the cows of Bashan. And you can see the cows of Bashan today. Go to the Golan Heights, drive north, you know, toward uh, in that area, and there's cows all over that area. In fact, I saw the cows of Bashan just about two weeks ago and thought of Amos and thought of our time here today. But you know what? There's the cows of Bashan right there. They're big, and they are fat. And this is exactly what Amos is saying to these women. It wasn't a very endearing term. This is why prophets typically weren't invited to parties. Because they said, look, I I just call it like it is. He was blunt. And the people had a great location, but they had abused it. They had great, uh, great food, great supply, great riches, and they abused it. They put their relationship with God in the back seat. And instead, all of God's blessings were put in charge. So God decides now to afflict the comfortable. He puts them in the coach seats for a little while. Look at verse 2. He says, Go over to Kalne and look, and go from there to Hamat the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you bring near the seat of violence? Kalne and Hamat were in the north. Gath was in the south. And he mentions these great cities because he says, look, basically go and look at these great cities too. They're great just like your city is great, but I'm going to judge them. Go to the north, go to the south, even the greatest cities that surround you will not stand. And then he asks this penetrating question, do you put off the day of calamity? And it is a penetrating question because it's a question that we can ask ourselves as well. Do you put off the day of, you might uh, rephrase it, not calamity, but accountability? This is what he's asking. There is coming a time when God is going to step in and where grace becomes justice. God's going to call them to account one day. So here's a question, or I should say a principle, that begs, that comes from Amos' question. Do you put off the day of calamity? Do we put off the day of calamity? Do we live like we're immortal? And here's the principle, the first one. And it's this, there will come a day of accountability for every person. That's wonderful when we think of others. That's sort of frightening when we think of ourselves. Israel struggled against this same mindset as Amos asked them, do you put off the day of calamity? People recognizing there may be a time of accountability, but they felt like, you know what, they didn't believe it was very near. And so they focused instead on comfort and pleasure and not faithfulness. You know, in this day and age of our news and media, where news is basically entertainment, if you think about it, that's what our news has become, 
It's become entertainment. It's not become objective truth. We're big on accountability. We love accountability. Accountability makes great news. When somebody blows it, man, there's your top headline story. And everyone wants to read it. It becomes the front, the front page. We hate hypocrisy. We hate double standards. Even the world hates it, even though the world has double standard. But when there is someone that, who is so caught red-handed that you think, you know what, this is going to make a great headline, they go for it. And even for us, it's the same frustration that we feel, not only in politics, which is easy to see, but in our own lives, in our own churches, in our own nonprofits in which we work and serve. Hypocrisy is there as well. It is a challenge. I don't know if you've ever been in a context like that where those over you are quick to hold you accountable and yet they themselves have zero accountability It is a challenge. Part of the image of God within us is the sense of justice, that that's not right. And when we see an outrageous wrong, everything in us demands justice. Until we realize that swings both ways. And don't we also need to be called to account? We love accountability until it's personal accountability, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, I don't want justice, I want grace. When somebody else does something wrong, we immediately want the law to step in or God to step in and take care of it. When we do something wrong, we immediately want God's grace to cover it, and then we just move on like nothing's ever happened. We have our own double standards, and it is such a challenge to live that way. I always love it when someone uh, tries to say, you know what, God, uh, why didn't God just deal with all, this, all the suffering and all the evil in the world. I mean, God just allows so much evil to happen. Why didn't God step in and do something about all the evil in the world? And I love that because then you can say, you know what, that's great. Let's start with you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, no, I don't, mean everyone, I don't mean everyone worse than me. I don't mean me. And that displays the very thing that Amos is pointing at. God's justice is a great idea until it's our sin. And then we become like Adam and Eve. We want to hide from God behind our fig leaves. The book of Hebrews says this. It says, it's appointed for people to die once, and after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. Because whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, there will come a time of accountability for every person. Amos is saying it's coming. And the whole Bible, in fact, tells that that is true for us. And unless we place our faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, the sin that we have committed against God, God will judge. He promises that he will, or he's not a God of character. But Peter writes in 2 Peter, he says the reason that God has not stepped in is not because he's not because he's absent or apathetic or or can't do it. It's because he's loving and he's waiting, wanting us to repent so that people would not have to be judged. God's patience, God's lack of involvement represents his patience, not his his inability to, to go soft on justice. 
But there still is accountability even for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote. He writes, But who are you? But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He also writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. I didn't tell you the reference up front because you'd be scurrying to get to the spot and you wouldn't hear it. Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Listen to them again. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And again, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's not a judgment that punishes our sin. That was taken care of on the cross. This is a judgment for rewards. Rewards that we receive or potential rewards that we lose. So we need to view accountability, both eternal accountability and that which is here and now for what it really is. Accountability is such a good thing, personal accountability. Why? Because without accountability, we don't have the encouragement to be who we really want to be. I've been a part of a group of eight men. It was nine men, and, and one uh, last year went to be with the Lord. For the last 15 years in our neighborhood, group of Christian men in our neighborhood within like a square mile that we get together every Saturday morning for about an hour and we pray and we read the scripture and we have a time of accountability where we ask each other very specific penetrating questions. And they're hard questions, hard questions, very much geared toward men and very, very essential for each of us. And I like it, I like it uh, for the same reason I guess I could say I don't like it. But I, I don't like it because it's uncomfortable, but I like it because it's uncomfortable. Because it causes me to be honest and to know Saturday's coming. And sometimes decisions that I have to make in a moment's notice, immediately Saturday, and those group of eyeballs looking at me come to mind. Accountability helps us to become who we want to become. But anonymity gives us the illusion that all things are good. Anonymity is, is like the, the spiritual Facebook where we just sort of present this curated event, curated uh, position of our lives that isn't true. We just sort of show the tip of the iceberg. But the reality is there's a whole lot under the water. We've all got that. And we that doesn't mean that we show on Facebook, you know, all, everything under the water. But what it does mean is there needs to be a small group of people in your life and in my life that look under the water, that ask about what's under the water. Because otherwise, I've heard, I've heard it said before, without accountability, we are just a scandal waiting to happen. And, uh, and we deceive ourselves. We'll redefine sin. We'll call it something else. Or we'll somehow justify it in our minds. 
Amos wouldn't let Israel do that, and because this is recorded in the Scripture, we also have that same unsettling question. Do you put off the day of calamity? If we live like there was no accountability, we would do just what Israel did. Look at verse 4. He says, those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. The ruin of Joseph. Joseph, Joseph's uh, primary son was Ephraim. Ephraim is another uh, word or phrase for the dominant tribe of the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. So when he says the ruin of Joseph, he's speaking the ruin of your country, the ruin of, of the descendant of the great Joseph. And those who are now first, basically, will be last. It's sort of that principle. Those who, they will go now into exile at the head of the exiles. Those who think they are first now will be first to be judged, is what, is what Amos is saying. If you had to, which would you rather have? Think of these two options. God's blessings and a cheap relationship with God. Or affliction, and a deeper walk with God? That's a tough one to answer. Because what we want to know is, how shallow does my relationship with God have to be to still have his blessings? We want to sort of have both and, to straddle the fence. But the Lord often doesn't allow that, and he will step in like he did with Israel and say, I love you too much to allow you to be content with a thin, shallow spiritual life. If, a, if comfort dulls our sensitivity to God, he has little choice but to remove the obstacle. God is committed to our relationship even if it takes affliction. Look how he puts it in verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob, and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. Then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. The ten men referred to here in the house represent those not who were killed in battle, but rather those who die from the pestilence. And those who would bury the bodies would fear to mention the name of the Lord for fear that God may have overlooked them and the judgment would fall on them as well. Amos goes on to show in these next verses how thoroughly God is able to deal with the sin of his own people. Look at verse 12. He asks, do horses run on rocks 
or does one plow with them? What is, or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of the Arabah. It's a lot of terms there, a lot of geographic uh, terms, but basically what Amos is saying is from their northern border all the way to their southern border, God will afflict those who are comfortable and yet spiritually weak. God's purpose, though, for for his discipline is always the goal of rehabilitation. It's always the goal of rehabilitation. Look at the end of the book of Amos, just the last couple of verses. This is Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. You could see it in 13 as well, but we just look at 14 and 15. He says, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. You see, the goal of God's affliction is not just to punish and then we're done. The goal of punishment or discipline, really, is what it is, is repentance. It's the same idea in church discipline. Whenever church discipline is done and done right, the goal is always restoration. That's the goal of it. It's never just to ostracize somebody. Of course, today in our, uh, in our, in our culture, too often what happens is whenever someone is kicked out, they just leave, as opposed to sticking around and, and letting God do the hard work of sanctification. Most of the time we just leave and go to another church. But the ideal is that you stay and that you allow God to work and to do the hard work of, of sanding off those rough edges. Here's a second principle. As we enjoy our blessings, we need to remember to love the God who blessed. If it's really God who has blessed us with what we enjoy, then we need to reflect that idea with love towards God. In Amos's day, Israel was doing great. It was in its heyday of prosperity. And in some sense, the United States is as well. And for many people, uh, I mean, we eat better than the garbage disposals of many nations. Let me say that differently. Our garbage disposals, thank you, our garbage disposals eat better than many nations. That's what I meant to say. We are blessed. We are blessed. And not just physically, but spiritually we're blessed. We have such an incredible blessing being at this church. The teaching, the doctrine, the proximity to Dallas Seminary, the guest speakers like we had this morning. I mean, we have such a rich heritage of truth in the Scriptures and of solid exposition of the Scriptures. We are so blessed. And if you, if you think, yeah, ho-hum on that, go visit another church, any other church. 
well, many other churches. And you'll see it. The, the preaching is thin, and it's, ah, uh, it, you just want to stand up and scream. It's such a blessing. Amos shows how thoroughly God is able to deal with sin in his people. And it's not just Israel and it's not just them. He does it in our lives as well. He asks a couple of ridiculous questions here in verse 12. And they're ridiculous back in chapter 6. They're ridiculous because the answers are obvious. No, horses can't run on rocks. The Hebrew word literally means rocky cliffs or crags. Doesn't mean like rocks on the ground like stones, but you don't see horses running up rocky crags and cliffs. They can't do it. So no, they can't do it. Uh, you also can't plow with oxen rocky cliffs. The obvious answer is no. And as unnatural as these seem, his point is Israel has done something even more unnatural. They have turned justice into poison and righteousness into wormwood. And there's an interesting play on words here in this verse. It's, Amos says that they rejoiced in Lodabar. Lodabar was a city that would probably represented a, a military victory. So Israel was rejoicing over that. Yay, we had military victory in Lodabar. But Amos intentionally mispronounces the word Lodabar and says in Hebrew, Lodabar. I mean, you can hear how close those are, but the meaning is totally different. Lodabar means no thing. Or nothing. In other words, they were rejoicing in nothing. It was a, it's, a, it's an insult. What you think is a great military victory is really nothing without God. So here's the final principle, and it's a question, and it's a penetrating question. What blessings have blinded us to our need for personal holiness? For them, it was a military victory. For us, it could be a lot of different things. Maybe our retirement account gets more priority than our personal time with God. Maybe keeping our home nice and neat takes precedence over kindness within the home. See, the situation is different for each of us, and yet the challenge is the same for all of us. Blessings lull us away from remembering the God who has blessed us. I remember reading years ago about uh, Fanny Crosby, our great hymn writer. You probably know that she was totally blind as a result of an accident that happened when she was an infant. She, a doctor put some salve in her eyes and tended to heal her, and instead it just permanently blinded her. And she lived to be over 90 years old, so 90 years blind. And she wrote so many of our popular Christian hymns. And she, when she was only eight years old, she scribbled some words down, and I hope that I've quoted these to you before, but either way, listen to them again. She wrote, oh, eight years old, oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Remember elsewhere she said that she thought it was such a great privilege to be blind all her life so that when the first thing that she sees is Jesus. What a great perspective. Contentment with earthly goods is a sign of maturity. 
Contentment with our level of spiritual life is a sign of immaturity. Never be content with where you are spiritually. And by that, I don't mean that you walk around in the state of anxiety, but you always have a hunger to grow, always desire to grow more. With earthly goods, we can be content. But with our spiritual life, there's always a desire for more. This, this is a healthy balance. So let me get back to a difficult subject and just end with this. It's a question, and uh, it's a tough question. I ask myself the same question. Who do you have in your life that loves you enough to ask the tough questions? Now, if you're married, that's easy. But I mean in addition to that. Because so often, like it is with Jesus preaching in Nazareth, you know, a prophet's not accepted in his own hometown. Same is true in the household. But who do you have outside? I mean, we shouldn't discount the words of our spouse so often they are so insightful. And I hate that. But it's so true. Some of the greatest insight into my weakness has come through the loving words of my wife. But who do you have that's willing to ask you the tough questions? Because not just asking the tough questions, but to love you enough to say, you know what, it doesn't matter what you say, this is, it's a safe place to be honest. Because whatever you tell me, I'm still going to love you. And no matter if you tell me something terrible, I'm going to walk through it with you. We need friends like that. Proverbs says, a man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We need that person. You do, and I do. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Leaders struggle with this so much because so often they only surround themselves with yes people. And if anybody raises their hand to say, wait a second, I've got a question. In fact, I've got a problem. Often, pow, that person's gone. And so there's just this illusion that all things are well, when the reality is you've surrounded yourself with the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Not just wounds, but the wounds of a friend. Someone who loves you enough to be honest and to say, I'm not just saying this because, you know, I see something wrong in your life. I'm saying this because I love you and I want what's best for you. And I'm seeing something objectively, as the scriptures tell me, that you want to know because you want to be like Christ in your heart of hearts. But this that I'm seeing is keep, keeping you from it. That's a friend. Those that don't love you on that level, they're going to say, you know what, I don't want to have that hard conversation. And they'll just walk off. And you're left unchanged. Don't discount the critical words of someone who loves you enough to be honest. Do you put off the day of calamity? Amos asked. What he said there to the Samaritans, he says to us as well. Our accountability to God is such a blessing because it helps us to become who we wouldn't be otherwise. Let's pray. 
Father, thanks for the courage of Amos to follow your lead, to leave his own country, and to go up to Israel where there was not one godly king and to speak the truth. It's sad that they didn't listen. But Father, I pray that that would not be the case in our lives, that the words recorded in the book of Amos ask those penetrating questions that we have walked through in our time together. And your Holy Spirit, probably I would say to a person, has tapped our shoulder in some area. Father, you alone know what it is. And I ask that you would be so gracious and loving as to provide a friend or a family member or someone to come into our lives to love us enough to be honest and to speak words in a gentle way that they might be heard. Give us the courage also, Lord, when we see weakness in the life of someone else, when we see a pattern of weakness in the life of someone else, to have the courage and the love to speak the truth in love and to trust your Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Father, we're thankful that you've changed our life step by step, like, like building a stalactite, drop by drop, until finally it's massive. We pray that you would continue your good work in our life and that we would submit to you as you do it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.